Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell, and today my guest is Oliver Kaplan, Associate Professor at the Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver. His new Cambridge University Press book, Resisting War, How Communities Protect Themselves, explores how unarmed civilians take enormous risks to protect themselves and stand up to heavily armed combatants. In his case study of Columbia, Kaplan shows how and why civilians are able to influence armed actors and limit violence. Welcome to the podcast, Oliver. Thanks for having me, Susan. Before we dive into the details of your book, would you share some of how you came to focus on Columbia and on civilian autonomy? Yeah. So this topic has been near and dear to my heart for a long time because uh, I think it uh, has something really important to offer by showing that civilians actually have some opportunity to protect themselves using these nonviolent methods. And I got into this topic originally because I was at the time studying civil conflicts and uh, getting a little bit depressed really by the literature because it mainly was talking about examples of people being uh, targeted, victimized, killed with very little that civilians could do. And yet at the same time, I was also following news stories of conflicts around the world and seeing some really powerful examples of being reported of civilians taking actions to protect themselves um, and to exercise their own agency in the midst of armed conflict. And this just became this very fascinating puzzle to me. And I decided it was something I wanted to to work on. So it actually the origin of it was my uh, doctoral work, and it then um, became this uh, this book in published form. And, and it's fascinating. You talk about how both journalists and scholars tend to focus on these people as victims, victims of civil conflict. And in fact, you you have two little phrases. One is, if it bleeds, it leads, but if it's nonviolent, it's silent. And so it really frames this problem that we have and the implications for our understanding of Colombia, but also the field of conflict resolution, if we're always focusing our attention towards the, the, the victimization as opposed to the um, the powerful ways in which people can organize against it. A lot of our listeners are not familiar with your case with Columbia. Maybe they've heard of the FARC. Um, can you just give us a little bit of background on this area in Columbia? So that is the real puzzle of the book that you brought up, that we have this kind of attention bias that takes us away from some of the nonviolent cases that are able to maintain peace in their communities. Uh, and we tend to pay more attention to places where there is active conflict, where atrocities may be occurring. And it's really important. I think one of the core messages of this book is that it's important to look at both types of areas and t- try to understand, well, how do if there are some islands of peace, how do they maintain their security? And um, just because nothing is happening somewhere doesn't mean that there aren't people on the ground trying to advocate uh, for their own protection. And so then turning to the question of really the question of why Colombia, um, this was a case that had some early prominent examples that I came across. And uh, it seemed like a good place to at least to start to study this topic of civilian agency or civilian autonomy in the midst of conflict. Um, and this was for a few reasons. Uh, one, I happened to have some Spanish background, which enabled me to at least start exploring the case. Uh, but it also 
was at a time in the mid 2000s when security was starting to improve. So it seemed like uh, it might be possible to do some safe field research. And it also seemed to have a variety of cases and communities and, and enough different um, towns and units uh, to collect data and to do both quantitative research as well as, as qualitative uh, field research to understand some of the historical processes that these communities have used. Um, but I also just want to note that the the book aims to be or aspires to be much broader than a book about Colombia, even though a lot of the evidence uh, is from Colombia. I think the 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 argument of the book uh, and the the theory is more general. Um, it while it does occur in Colombia, it certainly, from my research, I've seen it play out uh, in different ways uh, across countries and across conflicts. Uh, so civilians in various countries are organizing themselves and they're acting of their own volition to try to protect themselves. And I think you know if you, if you ask me what's the kind of interesting thing about about looking at this cross national evidence is that it's it's incredible in some ways how some of the same things and almost the same messages uh, of these different actors are are seen and heard uh, from place to place around the world um, from totally different contexts. You see and hear people talking about and thinking about the the problems they're facing and the solutions that they're coming up with in very similar terms. And so, and so the in the in the book, there's there's evidence from uh, some other countries as well, um, and some examples uh, certainly from even more countries. No, and I'm sorry, I should have I, I should have framed it in that matter that the the book is focused on the case study of Colombia, but you are very very clear about the more general implications. I mean, the, look, the project is at the sort of crossroads of several really big literatures in political science, civil wars, civil institutions, peace communities, civil autonomy. And I'd like you to say a little bit more. You you started to about the methods that you use. This is a very complex book. It involves field research. It involves interviews. It involves statistics. So say a little bit more about the methods involved and also a little bit about the, you know, the time that you spent doing the field work um, in Colombia. So this book, it, it, it is kind of at this intersection of a lot of different topics uh, and fields. I mean, I think even beyond political science, I think it, it, in some ways it ties in um, anthropology, sociology, possibly some economics, history, um, because of the multifaceted nature and challenge of protecting civilians and the complex interaction of a variety of actors in these conflict settings. And so you have uh, you know, communities on the ground, they all have their own histories, they have their own uh, practices, uh, possibly cultures, um, they are organizing in certain ways, they, um, and then they're encountering other actors, they're encountering political actors and armed actors, and international actors. And so part of the, the challenge was to look at those various different levels. And that required drawing on a lot of different literatures, uh, including I have to say, you know, reviewing quite a lot of literature in Spanish in the local language, and I just want to want to point out that um, Colombians and other scholars writing in Spanish had done quite a lot of research um, with a very a variety of um, 
disciplinary backgrounds to study some of these issues and study the conflict issues. And I felt like that was something that I definitely needed to draw on to have a firm foundation um, and not neglect some of that uh, important work. And so the the um, fields involved, you know, they 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 all bring different uh, perspectives on these uh, on these actors. And so, um, you know, for at the community grassroots level, is really more kind of like an anthropological issue, some sociology. Um, but when you get to the political interactions, that's sort of much more of a political science uh, perspective involving questions of power and um, collective action and those kinds of things. And so. Um, it really, it really kind of took a lot to bring those strands together to get it a, a comprehensive, uh, some kind of comprehensive answer. And then, in terms of the different research methodologies applied, well, one of the challenges I, I, I came to see quickly with this research question was there just wasn't a single method that was going to get me the uh, breadth and depth of the the answer that I hoped to to get in the in the research. So um, I realized that you know. On the ground, certain things were happening that were very subtle or very, very much behind the scenes, precisely because there's not that kind of press coverage. And so I would have to go in deep and understand, you know, really the psychology of the civilians, the psychology of the armed groups. Um, but then I'd, you know, I'd want to try to expand it out and try to understand more systematically how do they interact with each other? Um, what kinds of patterns can we see? How do we identify some causal effects of the actions that civilians are taking, especially when they're um, behaving in very complex environments where they're armed uh, conflict events and different armed actors and they have their strategies. And so really the it was sort of a um uh, really uh, out of necessity or maybe a plea for help that i drew on all these different uh method methodologies and so i think you know each each piece kind of contributes something um but it doesn't take it all the way and so the the kind of way that i've thought about the the methods coming out of this book is that it's really kind of a gestalt you know once you put out all of them together you get a much more rich picture of of what's going on no, I think that's a nice description uh, of of the book, and that certainly comes through. I'm obviously not a specialist in this area of the world, or actually even in the subfield of political science. Um, but you make it very clear. You introduce uh, the terms, the actors, the the time periods in ways that make it very, very clear for um, uh, a, a less specialized reader. Let's um, before going into the theory, I, I do want to make sure that people understand a little bit more about the the, the actors involved because I think it'll make the theory a little bit um, clearer to listen to. So, can you set the stage a little bit? Can you give us one example in which civilians are are not helpless victims, but but actually deployers of these nonviolent strategies that are helping them preserve their autonomy. Can you just give us one example to start with, and then we'll move into um, the theoretical framework? Sure. So one of the main cases that features in, in different parts of the book is this case called the Peasant Workers Association of the Karari River, which is in Colombia in the north central part of the country. And this was an association that in some ways is one of what, what's called the first kind of peace communities in, in the country and maybe in the world. Um, they formed uh, 
in the late 1980s. They had an organizational process, 1987, and then um, reaffirmed in, in 1990. Uh, and they were basically caught in this situation in this uh, rural river valley uh, in the northern part of the country where they were caught between multiple armed groups and the uh, military as well. So they were um, in Colombia, there's a sort of a complex conflict. There are um, these insurgent groups, guerrilla groups, some of them we've seen in the news recently, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia or the FARC, which just signed a peace agreement. There's the National Liberation Army or the ELN, who are still active. And then at the time, there were uh, quite a variety of different paramilitary groups that had formed as well. So, so sort of more right-wing uh, group, vigilante groups, in some cases pushing back against the uh, guerrillas, um, as well as some different criminal actors. Uh, and then there was the state forces, so the military and the police, all caught in this mix. And, and basically, the situation that this community, uh, which is in the village of, of La India, as well as other countries around the world, they find themselves in this situation where they're really caught between armed actors and they're they're stuck in really what's kind of like a fog of war and so no one really knows who's who who's supporting which side or the other there are these counterinsurgents that are trying to um, steal the support of the population from the insurgent groups there are insurgent groups that are also fighting over the population and so really everybody starts kind of fighting over the population pitting the population against each other. In this particular community, they said, no, we don't want any more of this. We're tired of you all you know, pushing us around. And so they basically decided to collectively uh, try to organize, even amidst all this fear. Uh, they protested and they dialogued with these armed groups one by one, and they got them to all commit to uh, leaving this community alone to a type of neutrality. And so this, it would be up to this community to manage security and and monitor the types of activities that people were going to be involved with so that they weren't um, getting involved in the conflict, uh, promoting one side or the other. And then they um, also, over a long period of time, promoted these pro-peace norms among the population to avoid links with armed actors, to avoid dangerous entanglements. And so that's one of the kind of, I think, clear most clear-cut um, and analytical, analyzable examples uh, that we find. Of course, there are many other uh, communities out there, but that was sort of one of the, the strongest cases. And just by contrast, and we can talk more about this, there are also many uh, smaller sort of single village level entities that don't have a formal association. They maybe haven't even made formal declarations about how they're approaching armed groups and their and their philosophy of peace, and yet sometimes they also come together uh, to act collectively to protect themselves. And so, I think that in some ways that's the more prevalent but less noticeable uh, instantiation of this uh, of this process of civilians protecting themselves. Well, that's great. That's a great way to start us off, and and you're you're beginning to introduce an idea that is threaded throughout the book which is that social cohesion plays a role in the success of these civilians pushing back so can can you begin to get us into the 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 more theoretical part of the book can you flesh out the situation in which there tends to be success so these conditions of armed conflict, especially, you know, long-running armed, armed conflict, they're really challenging. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of fear. Uh, there's a lot of uh, attempts to coerce 
the population, um, to just sometimes use wanton violence against the population. And people are afraid to interact with each other. And so it becomes really difficult to even think about mounting some kind of opposition or some kind of local peace movement because people are even afraid to talk to their their neighbors. There's what's called the law of silence, which is a phrase that is used often in Colombia and also in other conflicts where people are afraid to even talk to each other because they're afraid that they're going to be ratted out by a neighbor to one of the armed actors and then be targeted. And so really the the challenge, the initial challenge is how do people come together to uh, to have a larger uh, imprint to have a, a more capacity to confront these armed groups, and so you know we can think about cases where there are single individuals living in war zones and in some ways maybe trying to protect themselves. Maybe they have a weapon. Maybe they um, are going to try to dialogue with the armed actor. But doing something alone like that can be very precarious because armed actors might see or hear someone dialoguing with another group and then decide to target them. And you really only have one chance because you're a single individual. And so um, these, uh, to the extent that these civilians can come together and organize themselves, act collectively, um, solve essentially solve a, a collective action problem that I uh, deem sort of the opposite collective action problem to that of rebel recruitment, where people, instead of instead of rebels trying to um, b- build up their organization and recruit civilians, you have a case where the civilians themselves are trying to act collectively to, in, in a sense, prevent recruitment into armed groups, to act collectively to push back against these armed groups. And so how do they how do, they do that? Well, they, it's, in some ways, during these conflict periods, it's very difficult because of that fear. And so really what I saw was that these prior experiences of cooperation um, and prior institutions, prior characteristics that would fil- facilitate interactions between people, especially um, maybe where there aren't many roads, where connect- connectivity is not easy, uh, really go a long way. And so uh, I, in particular, focused on certain types of pre-existing organizations that um, ended up to find themselves in war zones and look at how those organizations helped invariably helped uh, these civilians organize. And so once they have this organizational capacity, this experience, it lets them do quite a number of things. So they can uh, monitor the conditions, they can manage their own communities and spread pro-peace norms, they can be a figurehead to dialogue with external actors, including uh, outside actors, and they can maintain a historical memory of experiences and strategies and practices and they can maintain leadership so you know a single person uh you know being threatened or, or killed in one of these organizations is tragic but it doesn't mean the end of the movement it means that there's some resiliency there that they can continue to to act and then so what i saw was that you know this this organizational capacity whether it's just a single village or a large network of communities it enables these communities to take these particular nonviolent strategies that seem to have some success at uh, providing protection at pushing back against uh, armed groups, and so the, and these uh, strategies, of course, differ from you know armed self-defense movements. And I think this is a really important point to underscore that this nonviolent uh, strategy or aspect of the argument, uh, in theory, can help these 
communities avoid retaliation from the armed groups. And so uh, they they don't become as much of a target um, and they don't blur the line of becoming uh, an armed actor themselves. And so there, there's something really important about that. And it's also much more inclusive. Many more people can get involved in a nonviolent movement than maybe take up arms. And in fact, a lot of communities don't even have sufficient arms to, to counter uh, a highly armed and highly lethal armed group. And so the, the nonviolent uh, st- approach really offers quite a lot. And there are some different uh, stra- specific strategies that they can use. I think of two really two types of two groups of strategies. One would be what I call the covert strategies, which are sort of more hidden strategies. And these are things like um, promoting p- pro-peace norms among the population so they don't get into dangerous entanglements with armed groups. Um, they involve um, managing uh, information flows so that uh, they, they involve early warning systems so that uh, people can get word of uh, possible threats of violence and get out of the way. Um, then there are these other types of strategies I look at, which are what I call the overt or the more outward facing strategies. And these include things like investigating threats that, that are made by armed actors to try to provide credible evidence and clear people um, who've been accused of supporting one armed group or another. It involves things like protesting against uh, armed groups to invoke their reputations and and push back against them in a collective way. And so uh, the the book is tracing this this argument of uh, organization enabling different nonviolent autonomy strategies, and then thinking later about how the armed actors might respond and modulate their uh, their repression against communities based on the behavior of civilians. Throughout the book, you emphasize how the reduction in violence can be affected by the armed actors' behavior capacities and ways of thinking, that that there is something that the civilians are doing that then affect the the, 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 the armed guerrillas that are around them. Can you... Can you explain that a little bit more and maybe give us an example of how of how it is that this 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 movement for peace can actually affect the the people who have the arms and appear to be the threats in the first place? Yes, this is really I think one of the most important parts of of the book and the argument that Civilians can be doing all kinds of mobilization and action, but if we can't verify, you know, whether they're having a protective effect, you know, it, it raises some questions about the utility and, you know, whether we, sh- you know, how much we should invest in these kinds of approaches and all those kinds of things. And so, it's really important to understand, you know, the the people who are the violence makers, the perpetrators, and how they're thinking about. Uh, variation in community capacity, variation in the, the nonviolent strategies that they may be confronted with. And so it's really a question of getting at uh, armed actor psychology and the actors that that matter. And so I think uh, that was the the goal of of the research was to try to include that piece and 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 build that because I felt like that was something that was really missing in the existing uh, literature and studies out there was that there was a lot of focus on the civilian collective action but less so on the armed actors and so I as I was thinking about it I was thinking about well how do you know how can we tell 
when armed actors might change their behavior based on some kind of push or pressure from civilians. And I came to this concept that I, that I uh, call, I refer to as the armed group's sensitivity. And so not to say that armed groups are nice and sensitive people out there, but that they, that they have some responsiveness, that they're sensitive to pressures and to um, different strategies that civilians might uh, use uh, to deal with them. And so some of them, it could be that, that, that they're more susceptible or, or responsive to protests. They're more susceptible to their reputations um, being, being uh, impugned. And so when that's the case, if you have a group that, that has some, some relatively greater sensitivity, they're going to maybe respond more and modulate their violence more, reduce, the, re- reduce their repression more than groups that are not like that. And some of that has to do with, in, in my thinking, um, some of the resource bases of these groups, it could have to do with the strategic uh, settings in which they find themselves, what kind of pressure they're under, whether how hard they're competing for territorial control. And so it can really come from a mix of, uh, of factors. It can even come from some of the uh, norms and ideologies that are existing or pre-existing within, within the group, the beliefs about what's appropriate in terms of use of violence. And so uh, I think really measuring their behavior, and this can be measured in terms of the actual violence that's used. It can be measured in terms of uh, the statements they make and and other um, decisions that they make about violence and how they treat civilians, that this was just a crucial kind of final outcome, a final uh, variable to explore. And I did this in just empirically. I mean, we can get to some of the uh, evidence more deeply, but uh, I looked at it statistically thinking about uh, well, what are the patterns of violence and how do they correlate with uh, different levels of community organization across Colombia? Uh, but then I also looked at it in several different ways, looking at the accounts of these armed actors. And so um, I got both some uh, transcripts of uh, accounts from different armed actors. Um, and you can see this, uh, for example, some of the research I did on the Philippines. There's some documents about how different uh, the military or different uh, insurgent groups were responding to civilian uh, entreaties to set up what are, what they call peace zones. In Colombia, I was able to interview approximately 30 uh, former combatants from the rebel and uh, paramilitary groups to ask them, well, how would you treat a community that uh, was you know, mobilizing some kind of nonviolent action or that was more organized versus a community that uh, was less organized. And those quotes were really, uh, really fascinating. And I can just share a couple of those quotes with you. Uh, In one case, I was talking with a mid-level FARC commander and I uh, demobilized commander and I put this question to him and he said, well, it's like this. Uh, in, in Spanish, he said, una sola golondrina no hace verano, which in English is a single swallow doesn't make a summer. And I was very puzzled like about this phrase. So I said, well, what do you mean a single swallow doesn't make a summer? And he said, well, it's, it's Shakespeare or Aristotle or something. And I said, well, it is. <laughs> I didn't know that. And he says, yeah, what it means is that, well, a single swallow or a, a single individual isn't really something that we're going to take into account. But if it's a whole flock of swallows or a, 
um, you know, a whole group of individuals that are um, pressuring us to change our behavior, we have to take that seriously because um, it's it's much more important. Um, it's you know more greatly threatened threatens our political support. And so there's a case you know where where you can see this uh, armed actor psychology at play. One other just brief example I'll mention is from the the case I referred to earlier, the Peasant Workers Association. They had this fascinating process where as part of their association work, whenever they would have a dialogue with armed groups, they would write down verbatim, word for word, the meeting minutes, the notes from those uh, interactions. And so they captured some really incredible information. It's like being a fly on the wall. And there was a case where they were meeting with a paramilitary commander, uh, as well as uh, a neighboring community that was not uh, uh, an organized peace community. And the, the neighboring community said, well, how can we you know, get the benefits and the protection of uh, our neighbors here who are, who are organized for peace? And the, uh, the paramilitary commander had a very telling response. He said, well, um, if it's only one or two people, uh, we're not going to take it into account. But if it's the whole uh, – and we're going to stay. But if it's the whole community, then um, – then essentially we'll give you your autonomy. We'll, we'll have to respect it. So, um, and so really, again, this sort of thinking about the, the 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 magnitude of the mobilization affecting the armed group behavior is just this this key thing that I think uh, we need to continue to explore. So, as you were doing these interviews with both the victimizers and the um, uh, organizers who are trying to resist them, did you find in these interviews? Uh, um, contradiction between how both sides saw the same events? Did you hear the perpetrators reframing their actions in ways that were less violent? What, 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 what did you observe of how these people who are telling you the account were reframing it so that their actions would perhaps be more acceptable? Um, so, I mean, I guess there's sort of, yeah, like, did they have a social desirability bias of some sort? And I mean, I think that, that, you know, was possibly an option. I mean, I think for, for the interviews with the ex-combatants, I really didn't try to ask them things that were too sensitive because I didn't want to just, I just didn't want to go there. Um, but I think that they, they did, uh, you know, answer stuff relatively frankly and would, you know, go into certain episodes of violence. Um, and not, you know, I think the interesting thing about interviewing the, that group was that not everyone was sort of aware of the situation or maybe they weren't willing to talk about it, but some, some were, and some were more attuned to the variations from community to community. And I think, you know, one interesting thing about the kind of uh, consistency between the civilians and the armed actors is they actually, you know, had some uh, similar, even similar, you know, backgrounds. A lot of the armed actors, of course, they are former community members, or maybe they're community members again. And so they, you know, some of them actually, you know, some, maybe in some ways tragically, they were part of the community organizations before they joined the armed group or they had had experience with them or they knew of them. And so they, they had some initial understanding of the social landscape. So there's one quote that really from an interview that really stuck with me that spoke to some of the consistency of views between 
the armed actors, the the ex-combatants, and the um, civilians. And the quote was that someone said, there always, ha- there always has to be someone in the community uh, advocating for the community, standing up for the community. And that was a quote actually by a former uh, member of the FARC rebel group. It wasn't actually by a civilian. But it really shows the, you know, that they almost are thinking like civilians and see the value of uh, community organizations that are there that are able to advocate for the communities to stand up for themselves and uh, realize how, how important that is. And you know, that's something that easily a civilian would have said as well. You tell a story at the start of the book. Uh, this bawling, wailing woman comes through, and then the vice president of the local farmer association, who you refer to as stoic, kind of steps in. This is very, very dramatic. They sort of surround the woman as if uh, a giant protection. And from that point on in the book, I couldn't help thinking a bit more about gender. It seemed such a sort of gendered moment of the crying woman and the stoic man. And and I'm wondering, are there differences that you see in how men and women organize in these groups? Do they perceive autonomy differently? Are they concerned with different types of violence? Um, rape is... N- and I may have missed it, so you know your book better than I do. Are these different types of violence, do they play out differently with with men and women within these organizations? Really good question. And uh, I mean, the first thing I'll say is that, you know, I think that power, that story was so powerful and impacted me so much that I felt like I could not uh, put it in the book. Um, and uh you know, there, relatedly, I think just for for an academic book, I really did want this book to speak and and capture those stories because uh, these kinds of communities and the fieldwork uh, it just had so much richness that uh, I think it, it it explains so much in addition to the all the numbers and things like that that these stories are are just such an important view into daily life. And in terms of gender, I mean, the first thing I'll point out about about that book, that, that story, excuse me, is that I actually never viewed it uh, that way in, in gendered terms. And I guess, it, you know, it could be um, a gendered, uh, you know, there could be a gendered aspect to it. The one thing that I, I will note is that the, uh, you know, several years later, the president of that association was indeed a woman. And, you know, she could have been just as just as stoic. And I've, I've seen her, you know, be just as stoic. So, um, so I think, you know, there's some question about about what you know how, how valid that particular example is, but that said, um, you know, in my in, in my research and in this book, gender really wasn't the core focus of it, um, and, it, and that's mainly because I was really just trying to solve the general question of how are these civilians organizing in these very difficult circumstances? What does it generate? And in the course of the research, I interviewed you know many, both men and, and women, young and old, uh, different backgrounds uh, from across different parts of the country. Um, and, you know, they gave some different perspectives and, and addressed things differently based on uh, on gender. But I think in terms of the general 
question. They, in some ways, saw saw the the mobilization and the importance of the of the peace movement and the norms similarly. Um, but that said, I think it it play, can play out differently according to gender. And I think part of what you see in Colombia and in many other uh, countries is there is a, a, a patriarchal system to the you know to the, in the background of a lot of these communities, and so. Um, in some cases, the women traditionally haven't had roles of, of power. They haven't been involved. And so when the peace movement starts, for example, in the case of the Peasant Workers Association, it was initially formed by a meeting of men. It wasn't the women involved. Um, but the thing I can also say is that as that uh, organization grew, they they realized how important the inclusivity was in getting all of the community members involved, young, old, men, women all different faiths. And they indeed, while they started out with a lot of uh, men who were, you know, conciliators of disputes and negotiators with the armed groups, they later also uh, empowered and uh, included quite a number of women to do those roles as well. And so women were in the administration of the association as well, holding holding positions. And in fact, later, uh, a woman led the association. Um, but I think you know. The, so the the book doesn't focus on on gender differences per se, and I know there are um, researchers that are working on these kinds of questions uh, right now, and they're really uh, important. And I think you know that the the women uh, in these communities they they play some slightly different roles occasionally. Um, in some ways, they're almost more of like um, brokers between people, and so they they play this really important role of um, upholding the community fabric and bringing people together, um, sharing information, um, and those kinds of things are they merit much more uh, explanation. So, no, thanks for the clarification. Um, before we wrap up, I want to ask you a bit about where your research has gone since you finished the book. What are you working on now? Uh, how is it both related to and different from what we have here in uh, Resisting War? So, yeah, I feel like Re- Resisting War has been with me for so long that it's hard to <laughs> hard to get away. Uh, and it, it, it continues to fascinate and, and puzzle me as a topic. So I, um, I, continue, I'm, I am continuing to work on some of these issues of civilians and how they're organizing. Uh, more recently, I've done a little bit more policy writing and policy thinking about how outside actors might engage with um, and possibly support some of these local peace movements. And um, I've been gathering some other evidence of approaches and and strategies. And so one of the areas there that I'm looking into is how do some of what we might call sort of irrational or non-rational beliefs uh, and practices affect how communities react to violence and cope with violence? In particular, looking at things like, uh, you know, superstition, superstitious beliefs, um, some religious be- beliefs, the power of prayer, and things like that, because this was really an important thing that I saw in the in the research for resisting war, was that the uh, these these religious beliefs one they they brought people together, but they also made people feel empowered and protected, and more in some cases more willing to take action, more willing to remain. Nonviolent, and so a new project is looking at how some of these beliefs um, shape how people react to uh, to violence. Um, 
And then in, in addition to that, some other areas of work are some ongoing projects on ex-combatant reintegration. Uh, I have a few prior uh, articles on that, but doing some continuing work uh, looking at uh, really questions of kind of social reintegration, economic reintegration, and how combatants cope with uh, stigma, how demobilization processes affect um, how uh, the population views ex-combatants, things like that. And then I'm doing a finally a large uh, cross-national project looking at human trafficking uh, around the world uh, using uh, some quantitative methods, statistics, some uh, some data, and just trying to understand the patterns of trafficking and responses. and And that's a topic that I got into again. I think sort of just out of my my general interest in human rights and human security issues, and seeing that as an important uh, area of intersection in the in the topic of human trafficking and thinking about better ways that uh, data and evidence might help us um, improve our, our responses and solutions. Well, it's incredibly important and relevant work. Um, and I welcome all to pick up Oliver Kaplan's Resisting War, How Communities Protect Themselves. It was published originally by Cambridge University Press in 2017, and the new paperback came out in 2018. I mean, this is a book that really helps us understand why, how, and when armed groups will change their behavior in response to civilian actors. Um, it's important, not just for this case study, but for our wider understanding of human rights and conflict processes. So thank you so much, Oliver, for spending some time with us to explain the book. And good luck with your future research. Thank you, Susan. Great to share the book with you. 